and welcome to Gippsland Anglicans On Air. Today we continue with our Accessible Book Club during the season of creation and we're hearing Chapter 6, Savings and Investment of Jonathan Cornford's book, Coming Home, which explores sustainable living through a Christian lens. Morningstar Publishing says in Coming Home, Jonathan Cornford joins biblical theology with analysis of contemporary problems to help chart a practical, hopeful and life-giving path through troubled times. Today's episode is part seven, but don't worry if you have missed an episode, you can listen to Life FM's podcast online anytime. Also, the chapters of this book make sense independently, so you can join in at any point of our journey or plan ahead to hear a particular part. Visit www.gippslandanglicans.org.au for program details. A note about the chapter you were hearing. To keep within our program timeframe, some parts of the chapter have been left out. We invite you to get a copy of the book and read the chapters And we will also explain those parts when we meet to discuss this section on the 12th of October. Today, you will hear from Gippsland Anglican Jan Down reading Chapter 6, Savings and Investment, from Coming Home by Jonathan Cornford, published by Morningstar Publishing. Chapter 6, Savings and Investment. What's the problem? We are continually told that your money should be working for you. Indeed, for many, this is not only smart advice, it is the essence of being responsible. Having well-invested money is part of being a good parent and a good citizen, and some would even say a good Christian. It's revealing that for many modern Christians, good investment is synonymous with good stewardship. This way of thinking is so ubiquitous, so seemingly self-evident, so moralistic, that we hardly stop to inquire more deeply into what is being said. If money is able to earn more money without our labour, how does it do it? Of course, the answer is simple, through a savings account, an investment portfolio or a real estate investment. But what are these magical things that simply take our money and make more money? How do they do it? If they are able to generate a return on investment, Where does the increase come from? It's these simple questions we need to be asking if we are truly to take care for the impact we are having in the world. At its most basic level, whenever you put money into a bank, you are lending them your money with the understanding that they can use those funds to go out and make as much money as they like, as long as they pay you back an agreed amount of interest on top of your principal. Traditionally, the bank would simply do this by lending out the money to you and others, lend them, usually for a business loan or home loan, to someone else at a higher interest rate. However, over the last 30 years, banks, especially the large ones, have diversified their investments into the much more complex realm of global finance. This is the obscure world of the stock market, currency trading, bonds, securities, and other financial derivatives, which are so complex that hardly anyone understands them. Since the 1990s and the beginning of compulsory superannuation, the retirement savings of most Australians and many others around the world have also been staked to the fortunes of global finance. Indeed, superannuation funds have emerged as one of the big players in a very big game. The most visible part of the finance world is the stock market, where company shares are bought and sold. 
Once the exclusive territory of businessmen, the buying and selling of shares has increasingly become normalised for mum and dad investors, especially those on higher incomes. Buying shares in a company makes you a part owner of that company, entitling you to a share of its profits and giving you a say in how it is run. Moreover, and this is where the real interest in share ownership lies, if a company is doing well, then the value of its shares rise, which means that if you can sell shares for a higher price than you bought them, you stand to make a windfall profit. In theory, shareholding should mean that share owners have a stake in ensuring that a company is well run and profitable. However, in reality, the primary interest in shareholding has been in the rising value of shares and companies have often been run according to this overriding concern. Which company shares are most attractive to investors? Clearly those from companies that make the largest profits. How do they make large profits? Ah, there's the rub. Two of the primary ways are to pay as little as possible for the resources they extract from the earth and pay as little as possible for the labour they extract from workers. We see this clearly in the operation of the global mining industry in developing countries, where vast profits have been made digging up gold, silver, copper and other minerals. Yet so often local landscapes and ecologies are left devastated. This is yet another blow to biodiversity and often severely adversely affects local communities who are dependent on the rivers, farming land and forests that have been destroyed. In developing countries, the true cost of this damage to the environment and the loss of local livelihoods is very rarely compensated adequately. The operation of the global textile industry provides a clear example of companies seeking to locate their production in countries where they can pay the least for labour. This can exert pressure on governments in those countries to keep their labour standards weak and minimum wages low so as to entice multinational investors, a clear factor in the failures that led to the tragic collapse of the Rana Plaza garment factory in Bangladesh in 2013, killing more than 1,100 people. Mining and textiles are two well-known and easy examples of the ways in which profit can be made from underpaying the true costs of production. However, there are thousands more. This is not to say that all profitable companies behave in this way, but such behaviour is widespread among companies listed on the stock exchange. When our money goes into a bank or super fund, it is into this world that it is invested. The return, which we see simply as a percentage rate, has a very real, albeit complex, story of people and places behind it. Although the financial economy is in many ways detached from the real-world economy, it still has the power to completely dominate the economic decisions of world governments. We saw this in 2008 when the trading activity of a frighteningly small number of people brought the world to its knees, forcing world governments into an economic bailout whose total price tag, that is, the cost to taxpayers, approached 14 to 15 trillion US dollars. This, in turn, forced governments everywhere to adopt austerity budgets, slashing spending on healthcare, education, welfare, foreign aid, 
humanitarian assistance and refugee intake. When the super elite world of finance sneezes, it is the poor who catch a cold. However, the human impact of the global financial crisis was much less than that of another less well-known crisis that took place the same year, the 2008 food crisis. That year, the price of grain spiked around the world, doubling on average, suddenly making food unaffordable for a large number of the world's poor. In 2008, there were food riots in 30 countries across three continents. The causes of the food crisis were multiple and complex. However, one factor that increased its severity, especially impacting the price of wheat, was the role of finance. In late 2007, as the subprime mortgage crisis began to bite in the US, the big pension and superannuation funds all began to withdraw their money from real estate and look for a more profitable sector. They began speculating in food futures markets, bidding up the price of wheat in a mad auction whose end result was a lot of hungry people. There was never actually a shortage of wheat in 2008. What connection do we have to this strange and rarefied economy? Quite simply, if you have your money in a term deposit with a major bank, or if you have a standard superannuation fund, and that is the vast majority of adult Australians, then your money is being used in all of these things. If you had money in a standard super fund in 2008, there is a good chance that you unwittingly profited from the misery of the food crisis. What about buying an investment property? This is a much more direct and tangible form of investment, usually under the direct control of the person investing the money. And surely it also provides a needed service, a rental home for the community. Generally, this is true. However, there are a number of complicating factors, meaning that real estate investment has become associated with some quite negative impacts on society. The most prominent of these is, of course, the housing affordability crisis that has gripped much of the developed world. What does the Bible say? The world of global finance is a universe away from the world of the Old Testament. Nonetheless, even in those ancient times, there was a strong comprehension that capital could all too easily be put to uses that were destructive. So it is perhaps not surprising that some of the Bible's strongest teachings on economic ethics concern the ethics of credit, what we would today call investment. A central pillar of Old Testament economic ethics was the prohibition on charging interest on a loan to a countryman. To us, for whom the charging of interest is an unquestioned fact of daily life, this comes as quite a shock. However, the language is quite insistent, and it is worth quoting the first appearance of this instruction at length. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry. My wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children orphans. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. 
If you take your neighbour's cloak in pawn, you shall restore it before the sun goes down, for it may be your neighbour's only clothing to use as a cover. In what else shall that person sleep? And if your neighbour cries out to me, I will listen, for I am compassionate. Exodus 22, 21 to 27. In this passage, the precursor to the instruction about interest is a very strong injunction to do right by the poor and marginalised, and it is framed by recalling to the Israelites their own liberation from slavery in Egypt. In this context, the charging of interest on a loan was seen as a core injustice, and it is extended to the taking of collateral in pledge for the loan. This teaching is repeated in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It needs to be pointed out that the lending being discussed here is not business loans, but lending to people in need, such as in the case of a failed crop or the sickness of one of the main workers in the household. These generally would not even have been loans of money, but food, usually grain. The very simple ethic then at the heart of the Old Testament teaching on charging interest was a horror that some people might grow their own wealth by exploiting someone else's need. Moreover, to the ancient mind, the idea that one could grow one's own wealth without actually doing anything, but merely by the fact of having accumulated wealth, seemed to be a violation of natural justice. It has long been forgotten by Western Christians that for the first 1,500 years of Christian history, the church also forbade the charging of interest on loans. It wasn't until the Protestant Reformation that Calvin began to make allowances for charging interest. In the Old Testament, the teachings on lending only applied to one's own people. Charging interest was permitted when lending to a foreigner. Such people were both strangers and therefore more risky to lend to and also were not considered part of the Israelite community of right relationship. However, when we get to the Gospels, Jesus urges his followers to go well beyond the stipulations of the Hebrew law around interest. Jesus asks his followers to lend to their enemies and to lend without expecting repayment. Luke 6, 34 to 35 says, If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Characteristically, this is yet another of Jesus' teachings on money that seem designed to give accountants and financial planners heart palpitations. Indeed, Jesus seems to advocate what many would piously denounce as bad stewardship. Why? Perhaps one of the hardest things for us to get our heads around and one of the most challenging things for us to accept is that Jesus basically rejects the whole premise of the modern conception of savings and investment, which is accumulation. We will get to how we practically wrestle with this in the section below, but it's important we are clear about what Jesus actually taught. Jesus' teachings on accumulation, growing your nest egg, are clear and direct. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither, where neither moth nor rust consume 
and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 19-21. It seems clear enough that Jesus completely rejects seeking greater wealth and comfort, what we would call a higher standard of living, as a life goal. It is a spiritual law that the more material wealth we have, the more we have invested in that wealth, to the detriment of other concerns. More than that, Jesus saw the goal of accumulation as positively perilous to spiritual health. What will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? He says of the rich man who is building bigger barns for his wealth, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Luke 12, 20. Perhaps even more confronting is that Jesus also challenges accumulation for the sake of security. Only a few verses after he says, do not store up treasures for yourself in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. For it is the Gentiles who strive for all of these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Matthew 6, 25-34 There is a great deal in this teaching that requires unpacking and more than can be accomplished here. For our purposes, though, it is enough to simply recognise that what Jesus is calling us to here is a profound reordering of our material priorities. Whereas our natural inclination is to invest our money and mental energy in securing our future, or more accurately, what we imagine will secure our future, Jesus is encouraging us to invest ourselves in the kingdom of God. Overall, there is very little in Jesus' teachings on money and possession and those of the rest of the New Testament that can be reconciled with the modern culture of making your money work for you. His teachings are difficult but clear and consistent. However, there is one passage of the Gospels that has confused this clarity somewhat, and that is the so-called stewardship parables, the parables of the talents in Matthew and the parable of the miners in Luke. For the last few hundred years, the stewardship parables have been consistently used by Christians who wish to argue that shrewd investment of money, that is, getting a good return, represents good stewardship and is a Christian obligation. The claim is that in these parables, Jesus is commending lending with interest and very high rates of interest at that. However, this is actually a gross misreading an interpretation that is truer to the stories themselves, most clearly in the case of Luke's story, and consistent with everything else Jesus has said in the Gospels for both Matthew and Luke, leads us to the reverse conclusion of what has become the mainstream exegesis of these texts. To demonstrate this properly requires going into the text in some detail, which cannot be done here. But it is such an important misreading of the Bible to correct that I have included a longer discussion on the subject in the appendices of this book. 
The upshot is that once read more carefully, these stories, especially Luke's version, provide the most searing indictment of high-yielding financial investment that can be found in the Gospels.